Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, I am Ian Rowe, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Nike Fajors, uh, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. All right, Nike, great to see you. As our listeners know, The Invisible Men is all about showcasing black excellence, where we highlight some amazing uh, black men that you may never have heard of. And we're really excited today uh, to be joined by Dr. Wilfred Riley, who's a, an associate professor at political, uh, political science at Kentucky State University, uh, as well as an author, uh, Hate Crimes, Hopes, some really fascinating books, and also a partner at the 1776 Unites campaign. Wilfred, we're really happy to have you here. Welcome. Um, yeah, thanks, gentlemen. I'm, I'm very glad to be here as well. I'm, I'm complimented to be considered an example of black male excellence. I'll have to tell my <laughs> students, see if they believe that, and the guys <laughs> in the gym and so on. But I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, uh, it's always good to, you know, the, the most excellent are the most humble. So there you go. So, that, so that's a good place to start. So tell us a little bit about who you are, you know, where you came from. You know, you're doing some great things now, but tell us a little bit about your journey and any um, pivotal moments that led you to where you are now. Well, I'm a Chicagoan by background. I was uh, raised by my mom, Jean Marie Ward, great lady in uh, the in that city itself. I grew up, I was born on the South side. I grew up in the Wicker Park neighborhood uh, for athletic and academic reasons. I ended up moving to nearby Aurora, second largest city in the state. Um, so lived on the east side of Aurora for quite a while. And I mean, working class American childhood and for there progressed on through sort of the educational system in that same state. I went to Southern Illinois University as an undergrad. I have a law degree. I think of myself as a trustworthy guy, despite that, uh, from the University of Illinois. I went to Southern Illinois again for uh, graduate school. I was part of the diversifying the faculty of Illinois program, their great program, trying to get more uh, minorities and also more males into secondary and uh, higher education. Um, and I mean, I've, I've done a range of interesting things in life beyond the degrees and the credentialing. Um, I'm a former traveling canvasser, a freedom rider is a half joking term used at the time for uh, gay rights and a variety of other things. I worked for a couple of years in the trading and the sales floor, really, but the bullpen sector of Chicago for companies like Marcus Evans. Um, and in my private life, I enjoy Asian cooking, uh, basketball and beer. I'm a Capricorn. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, all right. Well, excellent. Thanks for giving us a little insight on to, on to who you are. So, you know, Will, you know, I've come across a lot of the research that you have done, and you just described your own background. Sounds like rel relatively traditional. Um, but as you know, uh, within the Black community, there are very differing sets of outcomes for different members of the Black community. And you've done some interesting research on different ethnic groups within the black community that have very different outcomes than the whole. And that always seems to be pretty interesting. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, th this really is remarkable. Um, I've read a lot of the work of the great economist, Tom Sowell. And one of the things he points out is that people tend to take this sort of simplistic, dualistic approach to racial group success. 
Um, there's a very prominent group of individuals in the black community in particular, concentrated in fields like sociology, that argue that the cause of almost every gap is racism, either today or in the past, sometimes very uh, inventively defined. But some form of prejudice is responsible for what you see in terms of income and educational gaps. And then you have a quieter group, but one that uh, 10% or more of people in both white and black communities probably at some level belong to, which argues that genes, some sort of unchangeable mechanism, it's physical, it's metacultural, might, might cause these differences or does cause these differences. And what Tom Saul pointed out is that from the perspective of an economist who's looked around the world at group success, this is, this is nonsense. There's a third obvious explanation, which is that cultural and social variables vary among different groups that also vary in terms wait, wait, of- You mean individual decision-making? Yeah, it's, cr it's crazy stuff. I mean, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, just the, so the, the classic example of this, which Sol actually cites, um, the, and the, I use this almost word for word in a lot of speeches, the left-leaning government economist, June O'Neill, and the conservative at the time researcher, I mean, he just produced the end of racism, I think initially intending to fact check or Dinesh D'Souza, both looked at U.S. government data in, I believe, 1995. And they found that there was, as the racialists would expect, a gap between white and black incomes. The average brother, the average black man made 82 percent as much of, as what the average white man did. But they also found that adjusting for very simple and obvious variables um, that it is almost, frankly, dishonest not to adjust for closed this gap to, as I recall, one and a half percent, perhaps two percent. Uh, one of those was age. So the average black person and this you can simply Google average age by race uh, Pew Research or I'll say the most common age. It's a modal average for a black person is 27. The most common age for a white person is 58. Even looking at the median gaps between blacks and particular white groups that do quite well, such as Jewish Americans, are on the order of 10 to 20 years. So obviously, without being glib, if you are 58, unless you've been a failure in life, you're going to have substantially more money than a young graduate student who's 27. This is something that must be adjusted for. Uh, and again, the age at which you have children is not due to racism, not due to genetics. That is a purely individual decision. Birth control is widely available. Um, you know, region is another uh, relevant factor. African-Americans are far more likely to live in the South and wages are lower in the South. Uh, I haven't investigated this for a couple of years, but I would suspect that if you're looking at a particular community in Mississippi or Arkansas, there's a fairly small black, white, native difference in incomes there. The difference is going to be between someone living in that community and someone living in midtown Manhattan. So more than half of all African-Americans live in the South versus about a fifth of whites. That, again, is just something obvious, not even controversial that you have to adjust for. Um, test scores. It's become politically incorrect even to mention this. But last I looked, the average black SAT score is a 950, which by global standards is not even particularly bad. But the average Asian-American SAT score is an 1181. So, and I'm, I'm not bringing whites into the equation at all. I'm comparing different minority groups that report similar levels of experience bias here. So obviously the guy who gets a 1200 and goes to UC Berkeley is going to have a better chance out on the job market than the guy who gets a 950 and goes to Foothills Community College. So all of this stuff comes into play when we're looking at things like differences in income that are, are generally attributed to one of these two sort of 
discussed discussed in hushed voices, but generally believed uh, explanations. And in terms of your direct question, that's a fascinating. Oh, this gets this gets back to Sol, who does a much more sophisticated version of this analysis. What he points out is that there are there's not one black group in America. If you go to Wikipedia or Britannica and you look at ethnic groups by origin, and any Caribbean friend will be more than glad to tell you this is the case, even if you don't do that, you'll find that there are about 16 groups that fall under the general label of black Americans. You've got African-Americans, but you've also got that huge West Indian community. Um, You have Nigerian Americans, Ghanaian Americans, and differences among these black groups, which in no way could be attributed to racism or genetics, are giant. Um, the average Nigerians are one of the highest earning groups in the country. The average Nigerian household, and that's going to be a younger household, makes last I looked over $70,000. That's versus the average African-American household, which is about $41,000. So all of this stuff indicates the complexity of what we're talking about, that individual choice, variables like where you decide to live or where your parents were born, do you move? All of that has an enormous effect on success. And I mean, my suggestion here would be a very simple one. Look at what the successful groups are doing and teach those techniques to all of the groups within our community, in fact, within all communities. By the final sentence, the gaps for whites are the same size. Um, The white performance gap goes from Jewish Americans and Australian Americans, both of whom out-earn even Nigerians, down to groups like Cajun and Assyrian Americans. And I mean, if you're talking about some of those groups, I mean, poor Southern whites, Cajuns, recent Iraqi immigrants, I mean, you're talking about groups that in some regions of the country make less than African-Americans. So you can't just, you can't attribute that to racism. Um, You can't attribute that to genetics. All these people are West European Caucasians. You have to say, what does a Cajun American guy do that's different from what a Jewish American guy does? And if we're just being honest and talking with our friends, I think there are going to be some things that come to mind there. So, wow, that's very compelling. So, So why is it that you think these theories... You, you may understand why people make them, but why is it that they're so embraced? Why is it that people accept those responses? Well, I think I think there are a couple of answers. One of them, and I mean, I lean center right myself, and I don't I don't really want to do the usual conservative kind of work in the refs thing, like the media is to the left. You know, what about academia, which backs up the media? They're to the left too. But if you actually look at the specific fields that research this stuff, great scholars there, the Orlando Pattersons and so on, but that really is the case. I mean, if you look at um, identification by political party among sociologists or qualitative political scientists or something like that, it's going to be very consistently by university and by discipline, 85 to 97 percent strong left wing identification. Something like 17 percent of professional social scientists identify as Marxist. So I think the simplest answer to the question is you have a lot of siloing in academia. And in the fields that look at this stuff, there tends to be a very strong preference for the explanation of historical discrimination. And I have friends or friendly acquaintances, Rod Graham, for example, will banter with me on Twitter about this for hours, but who will make these arguments, will make these claims. But to me, just the raw data of, you know, the Nigerian individual makes twice as much as the African-American individual, that that is a more powerful piece of evidence. But I I think you definitely have one perspective that's very dominant in academia. Um, And that that may well be the reason for this. I mean, the the critiques like Thomas Sowell's, 
or, um, for example, the Thernstroms or Martin Gross looking at education and making some very obvious points, like the smarter the teacher is, the better the students will do. Um, those often tend to be highly educated people from outside the field that want to critique methods. I mean, within the field, ideas ossify. And this, this is enhanced by the fact that people often won't talk to each other. I, I recently on social media proposed a panel where um, a culturalist, probably myself or Coleman Hughes, would debate one of the guys who thinks that everything is due to racism and also one of the biologists who claims that everything is genetic, a quote unquote hereditarian. And myself, and as I recall, Coleman were on board day one. I, I still don't have the other two guys. I know. So I think they, that don't there's, debate. they don't want to debate. Yeah, but neither. I mean, it, outside of actual alt writers, who I don't really want to have in this kind of serious conversation, the, the, bio, the biology guys basically said, well, we don't want to be presented as bigots and, you know, tough research schedule on the hard sciences. You know, we're probably not going to do this. And the uh, critical race theory guys just basically said no. I mean, flatly, you know, debate is the white man's art and this kind of thing. So I think if you have fields that are 98% unidirectional and there's not much discussion across, say, the right wing field and the left wing field, as awkward as it is to say that, you're going to have these theories uh, very entrenched. And I mean, people from outside, including all of us, or successful black men that happen to be skilled enough with numbers and to look at this stuff may very well say, well, a lot of this is nonsense. The question is, will the people that are continuing this idea then, you know, quote from Riley or from Roe or from Phaedrus and say, yeah, maybe it is. And what we find is that that very often doesn't happen. Dr. Riley, I, I love the, the data and information you're bringing to this conversation. Two, two, one point and one question. Sure. Ian and I have actually talked about doing a program just on Soul's magnificent piece, uh, Black Rednecks, White Liberals, which I just finished for two months ago, and it really has changed a lot of my perspective on a number of areas that we're discussing. But my question um, is those Nigerians that you talk about, yep. and my wife, you know, happens to be a Kushite from Sudan, so I'm, I'm very familiar with sort of the cultural values that Africans bring to, to America. But could it be argued that the Nigerians that are here and also in the UK, they do exceptionally well. Could it be that those are the more educated, the more driven, the more family oriented, the more faith based people that have left Nigeria and thus are doing better? Sure. But that is and I, I don't mean this at all critically, but in terms of just empirical analysis, that would be almost irrelevant to the systemic racism argument and to a lesser extent to the genetics argument because they are still Nigerian. Right. I mean, they're very representative of the upper middle class Nigerian population across both of those perspectives. So if you're arguing that the United States is an institutionally racist country, I mean, I was reading a biography recently of the diplomat Ralph Bunch. And in the 40s, I mean, he had a number of good Caucasian friends. He was respected in the country. But when he went to the South, he still had to eat in separate restaurants. I mean, his finances were affected by this because brokers generally wouldn't work with them. That's systemic racism. So in a truly systemically racist country, um, along the lines that the crits argue exists here, it wouldn't matter if you're literally an African lord, as many Nigerians are. You would come here and you would be a very badly treated African lord. People wouldn't do business with you. They wouldn't let you into college. The reality is that if you're an African lord, you're treated like you're an African lord. You're admitted very frequently to Harvard or your children are, and you compete with the scions of the white and Jewish and everything else leading class in the country. So that, I mean, that in and of itself disproves 
much of the systemic racism thesis. Just, I mean, you're asking a separate question, which is, should we let in highly qualified, smart immigrants, to which the answer is yes. But I mean, I, I don't see much different between difference between the treatments of, say, the Australians and the Nigerians, if you're going to look at you know, college admission or income in most states or something like that. I mean, why is it so hard to have this dual conversation to say that, you know, there are remnants of racism that still exist, and yet they're clear examples. I mean, like you just said, these folks are more family-oriented, more faith-oriented, education, that they're individual behaviors that matter. And so, for example, you, you cited school outcomes and gaps. You know, I ran, uh, I run, you know, run networks of public charter schools for a decade, and the things that seem to matter for kids is the amount of time that they study. And rarely do you ever even hear that in the, in the general conversations about racial uh, ac uh, academic gaps. But you've, you've done some research in this area as well. Yeah, and again, there, there's, there's an entire sort of heterodox academic community, which is often made up of people who've been independently successful in business or who work for think tanks rather than universities, but who've said this stuff over and over again. I mean, there are multiple fields where some sort of center-right quant has showed up and said, well, this seems to be the issue. Why don't we do this? And that's gained a lot of traction in the media. And then it's essentially been forgotten. I mean, policing would be one of these, you know, more cops, more guns, less crime, so, so on down the line. Um, in, yeah, I mean, so first, I guess, to shout out one of those guys in this field, um, John Ogbu is someone we've talked about before. And there are a number of people that he's worked with, uh, Signetia Fordham, um, Amy Chua is at least acquainted with that school of research. Drew's written about tiger moms looking at why children succeed. And what all of them find very dramatically is that, again, it's not racism, not genetics. The biggest predictor of how well you do on tests is how much time you spend studying for the test. I mean, this is, it's just one of those astonishingly obvious things. I mean, Agbu looked at Shaker Heights, which is a, what I used to consider a ridiculously preppy city when I would go to you know parties throughout the Midwest as a high school and college man. I mean, everyone polo down to the socks, you know, black, white. <laughs> they all play sports together. I mean, 55% of the couples are interracial. But what you find is that the black kids do, no, they're not bad, they're still college worthy, but they do about 15% worse than the white kids. Um, someone could easily argue, well, that's the effect of residual racism. You know, 15% of the cutoff for residual. A, a bigot could argue, well, the tested IQ is, I mean, but the, the simple reality is that there's another explanation, which is that they study about 20% less. It's really remarkably consistent across, quote unquote, all social cliques of black students. I mean, this is the book that really repopularized the idea of acting white, but I don't, I don't even think that's necessary. I think it's the simple explanation. The logic model is black kids are more involved in social life. They tend to be popular. They play a lot more sports. And as a result, Shaker Heights has put players in the NFL. I mean, that can even be a logical decision if you have that potential future. But as a result, if you study 20% less, you get a test score that's 16% less, even if you're pretty smart. So a lot of times, this it is as simple as saying, if you have more cops out there and they're not racist, you'll have less crime. I mean, yeah. Brilliant. Well, you know, so we have a section of, uh, of the podcast that we call the speed round. I, I offer up a, a couple of different um, individuals or, or themes or philosophies and just ask you to pick one and tell us why. Okay. So we'll start, we'll start with free speech or free enterprise. 
Uh, free enterprise. If I had to pick one of those, um, speech has often survived better under conditions of moderate restraint. If you look at hardcore pornography, whereas if you have the ability to make money, you can do things like travel to other countries or print a journal under a different name. Love it. Uh, Martin or Malcolm? Uh, well, I mean, Martin in practice, I, by the way, I much more identify with Malcolm. I mean, I once joked online that I could never be a quote unquote Uncle Tom because I believe strongly in the utility of violence. Um, but in terms of is it more effective to, you know, go out talking to women with the president of the United States and march in a suit or, you know, run around with a gun speaking in Harlem? I mean, it, it is more effective to do what Martin did. I mean, that, that's why there's a Martin Luther King Day and a Martin Luther King inspired civil rights bill. So Martin. And lastly, Kanye or Jay-Z? Well, Jay-Z is easily the better MC. Jay-Z just across the board. I mean, none of the crazy politics on either side. Um, just a billionaire and by far the, the better MC. Jay-Z is one of the best hardcore solo male MCs of all time. Very good. Thank you. All right. So, um, you know, I, I, you can't leave without talking about hate crimes hoax and, and some of the books that you, you've read. Because I think... It, I think Part of what you have been trying to do is debunk uh, these narratives that are out there. Because, you know, there are people of goodwill who legitimately believe that there's such systemic racism in this country that it truly impedes the opportunities for young black kids. And these crimes that are often held are, are proof positive of those things, right? So, so what led you to try and dig in and say, well, actually, maybe these things aren't aren't as they are said to be. Well, what inspired the book was actually, when I was part of that kind of graduate student scene in Chicago, I uh, had friends at the different schools. I had come back from Southern Illinois University because my mom had an illness, but I mean, stayed very linked into that school, U of I, I'm an alum, you know, U of C, a bunch of my buddies went there. Anyway, um, during this period, there were three really high profile hate crimes in the student community in Chicago. Um, the bar Velvet Ultra Lounge, which is in the inner suburbs and very, I mean, very gay friendly, filled with a bunch of ferns, very hipster. Um, the bar burnt to the ground and these horrible anti-gay slurs were written through kind of the charred husk of the building. And that really traumatized people that I knew. Um, and that was just one of them, a student at U Chicago. I didn't know him. He was an undergrad. But a Derek Coculine, a popular campus leader claimed that someone had hacked into his Facebook page and his other social media and was messaging him these death and rape threats. The FBI got involved. This made the front page of the Chicago Tribune. This made the Wall Street Journal. And this may have actually come before all of them. I think of it as kind of the last straw because the time frame in which it was debunked so on kind of giving the game away, but at Wisconsin Parkside, someone literally made up lists of death threats including the names of all the black students on campus. Like, I'm going to get you, you know, Shawana, and then on down. Um, these were nailed up throughout the campus, taped up throughout the campus. There was also, I believe, a noose found on campus. So from about 2012 to 2013, you would see these stories every couple of months. There's also an incident in Michigan Tech um, claiming that hate was running amok in kind of specifically the Midwest grad student community. And it turned out that all these incidents were completely debunked. Um, you know, I don't want to make jokes like you need to watch who you owe money to in Chicago, but the, uh, the owner of Velvet Rope was about $200,000 in debt and set his own club on fire. Uh, this came out during a DUI trial for his buddy who had gotten caught by the police driving well over the speed limit, wasted, 
Uh, he snitched on a couple of people basically to avoid seeing club fed. Um, and th this came out, the insurance boys got involved. By the way, that group or tax auditors are probably the people I'd least like after me as versus gangbangers, soldiers, anything like that. They can take the family wealth, but they did in this case. They found out what he'd done, turned the information over to the police. Uh, he was duly arrested. He did two years. The Wisconsin Parkside thing was probably the most embarrassing from the perspective of being a black grad student who had been an activist about this. Uh, it turned out that a student leader on campus had printed up the list of death threats. She was caught because she'd spelled everybody's name on the lists wrong except for hers. So they were able to track through and see who's probably the perp here. Um, grabbed her, again, heavy fine. Again, and all this costs hundreds of thousands of dollars from a state police, if not federal policing level. Uh, Derek Cockley in the same thing. He had built himself a sort of a hacker and he had alleged, I believe the people attacking him were called the U Chicago Electronic Army. It turned out that he didn't know some of the very basics of hacking, like you can trace an IP address. So he hadn't used a VPN or anything like that. He had apparently gone into his other room and on another computer messaged himself these threats from to his computer, to his account, from his friend's Facebook account. Uh, what happened is that, I mean, obviously there are routers in a dorm, so you can see that all these threats were coming, you know, inside the house. So the feds again grabbed him. And at this point, I became a little suspicious because you keep hearing about you know, the environment of violence on college campuses. If you ever go to a college campus, I mean, again, 90 percent left wing young people tend to be radical. Um, again, half the couples are you know, pleasantly multicolored. Like there's no evidence of this. So I when I started hearing about other incidents, I mean, Jussie Smollett's obviously the typical example, but college violence. I wondered how much of it was true. And when I had some spare time during one kind of research summer, I actually started looking first i looked at a list of hate crimes at, that had been highly high profile at some point and you know analyzed how many of them turned out to be real led to a conviction but from there the major data source from the book is that i simply went on google jstor google scholar bing etc and looked for you know hate crime hoax hate crime fraud famous case collapses this kind of thing a fairly simple research methodology and I was able to get what is currently a list of roughly a thousand incidents. I mean, there's 630 case studies. They're concentrated during, not entirely during the past five years. And there are more than a thousand cases contained across them. And this seems to be a pretty substantial number of all the hate crimes during that period. I mean, so if you're looking, talking about five years, there are about 7,000 hate crimes a year. About one in 10, this isn't much disputed, are widely reported enough to attract the attention of the kind of search I did, major national or regional newspaper articles. So out of about 700 high profile cases per year, which would be 3,500 over five years, it turned out that let's say 600 at the minimum, not even using the 1,000 wow. figure, wow. never happened. Wow. And that is more, as far as I can tell, than the number that led to a conviction, which seems to be about 6%. I'm perfectly willing to believe most of those in between are real, but when you look at those actual figures, that's that's pretty dramatic. And the concentration of this in academia is even more remarkable. Uh, the majority of these cases, like Yasmin Saweed with the torn hijab, um, you know, Duke Lacrosse, Eastern Michigan, Air Force Academy, where a general had to come to the campus and speak against racism, Kansas State, you know, luxury vehicle targeted with these terrible slurs. I mean, those all turned out to be fake. Most of the University of Missouri scandal uh, turned out to be unreal. And that, that is remarkable in that one sector. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that 
how many people are going to do what you did to go into a database to find these hoaxes? Because these narratives, they persist, right? The Michael Brown, you know, the film that just, just came out a few months ago, What Killed Michael Brown, very compelling film, tells a very different story. But how many people are going to see that film versus everyone who already believes hands up, don't shoot actually happen? Yeah, th this is actually a major problem. We talk about the concentration of political bias in specific academic fields or in the media. If you are an anti-racist sort of center-right quant type and you're talking to a well-meaning left-wing buddy, they are very often going to keep hitting you. Or not even left-wing, sort of social justice buddy. This isn't something I see in the unions or something like that. But I mean, they're going to keep hitting you with things that they believe to be revealed truth that are all wrong. And you, you kind of go through them one by one. Like, well, what do you say about the epidemic of police killing black men? Well, there isn't a lot. And the total number of unarmed black men killed by law enforcement officers was less was 14. There were less than 100 whites killed, whites and Hispanics combined. There were less than 1,000 people total killed by police. I think that's a bit high, but there's 60 million police interaction. So that, that's not real. And then you have to spend days, you know, convincing them that's true and you're not a crazy liar, a Klansman in disguise. And then the next one is sort of, what about the wave of interracial crime? From the right, the claim is this is black on white. From the left, the claim is this is white on black. Interracial violent crime involving blacks and whites is about 3% of serious crime. I mean, if you go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics report, there were 600,000 cases last year, roughly, that had either a black perp white victim or a white perp black victim. And there were 20 million crimes. I mean, either violent crimes, which is half of them plus, or property crimes serious enough to make that index list. So, I mean, in, in fact, interracial violent crime generally is more than 75% black on white. There are more whites, they have more money, so on down the line. But it, it's all within that framework of 600,000 cases out of 20 million. So for neither side, is there really a lot of firewood there? I mean, but this, you go through that one and just, so on down the line, and then you get into this stuff, like what about the collegiate epidemic? What about the, the racism and bias in the tests? And none of it to a very real extent is true. And the best evidence for me is that the people that have never heard a lot of it, working class Nigerian and Indian and so on kids, are the highest performing people in the country by far. So I, I, I think all this is doing is handicapping people. If you think that black thugs are going to jump out of a building and beat you or white goons have written the test that you're taking, you're going to have that eyes in the back of your head sense. But it's just about made up nonsense. There's no such thing as cultural bias in a math test. You know, it's not possible. So that's a great lead in to our young man, Daryl, who's 16, who's growing up in a world where he is hearing these things, right? He is hearing that he's walking down the street and a white cop may just scoop him up, shoot him. Who knows? But that white cop is not there for his defense or the school is rigged against him. Like, what do you tell Daryl if he literally is growing up with that narrative every single day? Well, what, at the most basic level, and I mean, I've, I've done some coaching, I speak to young men's groups. I mean, at the very basic level, what I do tell kids without getting into philosophical underpinnings is just do what everybody else does if they want to be successful and you'll be fine. You'll experience racism sometimes, benefit from affirmative action sometimes. In my life, it's about evened out. I mean, it, so not to say just live your life. If you want to do specific things, uh, study hard, you know, work out, stay physically fit and confident, go to class. I mean, it's really not all that difficult. The percentage of middle-class white or black men that will be accepted to college is which is still sort of that gate line to lower upper middle-class normal, not normal, but successful life is well over 50%. 
It's not something that's going to be impossible for you to do. Study. Actually, there are four points that a, a preacher speaking before me said recently, things you can do that will prevent you from ever being poor. And this is pretty good advice. I mean, one was don't have children before marriage or at least a very long term relationship after 25. Preacher didn't focus on the second part, but uh, don't get convicted of a felony. Graduate from high school and get a job, any job and work it until you're ready to start a career. Those four things will reduce your chance of ever being poor to about half of 1%. And so this kind of obvious common sense is what I would tell a young black man. It's also what I tell the young Appalachian white men we see here in Kentucky who have the identical problems, which again, have very, very little in integrated working class communities to do with race or with racism. At a deeper level, I mean, I think if, if the guy asked me, well, why do I hear all this stuff? I think I would kind of try to explain some of the networks out there. So in a, in a sentence, nobody makes money from telling you to individually work hard, play sports and read a book every couple of days. That's not going to enrich anybody. There's no activist group that backs that. Charter schools that just say this do a great job and actually help kids. And the black community, the church does a lot of this, frankly. But I mean, that, that's not something an activist group is really going to put out there. Like what, what you need to do is log out of our website right now, go home, read a book and then go to school the next day. Um, so, I mean, I think right now there's an entire structure of benefits and advantages socially that is designed to counter the historic racism that we saw during conflict with the Caucasian majority, perhaps 40, 50, 60 years ago. Affirmative action is obviously a reality. I mean, so I went to the University of Illinois for law school, which is um, in solid school, right on par with my test scores. But I, one of the things that waitlisted me, and which as I recall later let me in, was Yale. And I was in no way really qualified to go there if you're looking just at sort of set scores. But the idea was, well, as a black guy, I'm going to get this extra 15 points. Like multiple friends in you know, undergrad school explained this to me. And I chose to go where I thought I would be more competitive. I mean, the goal is to finish first if you're going to compete. But I mean, that is... That is a reality in society. Minority set-asides are a reality. And more to the point, the giant budgets of the groups that advocate for these issues against their counterparts on the right are pretty significant. I mean, Southern Poverty Law Center has a well-invested endowment of $470 million. That's a little more than my state university. Um, there was recently an audit done of the different Black Lives Matter chapters. And the claim was that over the past five years, since Ferguson combined, they've raised about $10 billion dollars. I, I'd want to see that fact check that came from a little bit on the right. But I mean, the, these are remarkable amounts of money that go to people that are willing to advocate for this and say, well, before we can expect equal testing performance, what we need to do is completely reform the system of policing, cut the budgets by half, reassign what would be about $52 billion, and then we can start talking about tests. And I, I think to the extent I could with a smart young man, I would explain a little bit of this and say, you know, while they're fighting about this, you know, you keep studying. And I think it would be that second variable of you continuing to study that would explain 90, 92, 95% of where you end up in life. Wow. Well, Will, thank you. I know Daryl and a lot of the Daryls in the world would love, need to hear that message. And uh, exceptional, man, the power of research and the power of data. Um, thank you. Make compelling, compelling stories. Well, Will, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Invisible Men. Uh, as always, we are trying to showcase people just like you whose, whose point of view may not always be heard, but when it's told with such powerful force, demands to be heard. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Enjoy talking to you guys. All right. Yeah, Dr. Riley, you know, Dr. Soul is 90 years old and uh, 
there's plenty of room for folks like you to step up into those very large shoes and provide us all with the wisdom, the thoughtfulness, the clear-sighted thinking, and the pointed arguments that you made in this brief conversation today. Very proud of you. Keep, keep, keep reaching, keep grabbing, and keep, keep agitating. Yeah, thank you. And that, that's, that's a high compliment. But I suppose that would be my academic goal, actually, to do for a new generation pretty much what Seoul did. Just keep reminding people, like, well, both of these groups are talking nonsense. This is reality. And if you, I mean, if you just keep pointing out reality, I mean, the total number of, like the cop thing, the total number of black men killed by police officers, 10 whites in typical year might be 50. I mean, the, the, we want to save those 60 lives if we can without hurting officers, but this is not the sweeping national problem. I don't see how people can look at that and just say, yes, it is. So maybe I'll be surprised, but I mean, for now, the goal is getting some of that out there. Thank you for being an exceptional, an exceptional example of black excellence. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of The Invisible Men. Once again, I'm Ian Rowe. I'm Nike Fajors. And we will see you next time. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 